Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Dr. Shannon Wheatley-Hartman. She is the unrelentingly self-deprecating vice president of the Interactivity Foundation in the U.S., an organization that engages citizens in the exploration and development of possibilities for public policy. Prior to working at IF, she was full-time lecturer of international relations at Arizona State University, and her academic interests include nonviolent resistance, post-colonialism, participatory action research, and deliberative democracy. So welcome, Shannon. <laughs> Thank you, Lara. I am very excited to have you here because you and I had a chat last week and we were losing track of time just about. So I want to start out though by asking you, what was the path that led to your current work at the Interactivity Foundation? Thank you. Thank you for that question. And thank you for having me today. You know, I, oh, my path, you know, it's obviously it was not a, a straight path. I was uh, teaching at Arizona State University and I was working on my research, which dealt with border politics and in particular, everyday resistance in border zones. And mm-hmm. thinking back, I love teaching and I also loved, loved my research. And I think oh, around this time, I was also feeling a tiny bit burned out around a lot of, of what I was doing. Like, for example, when I defended my dissertation in 2010, During the same hour that I'm defending my dissertation where I'm advocating everyday resistance at the border and also everyday cosmopolitanism, like the border zone is a place where people are coming together and finding connection and resisting all forms of identity in the spirit of creating a larger we. While I'm saying this, our then governor of Arizona was signing into law the worst anti-immigration legislation to hit the U.S. in a long time. And so... Just that juxtaposition of like, I, I, I just, I love seeing people connected and coming together and, and doing so not just to make their own life go on, but to build community. And then to see that happen as legislation is being passed, it's really designed to destroy community and divide people. I mean, it was, it was kind of heartbreaking. And then while I'm doing all of this, I was also introduced to around the same time, the Interactivity Foundation through one of my friends and mentor at Arizona State. And and he was someone that I, I would work with closely in terms of teaching. So we would talk a lot about teaching pedagogy and how do we really elevate the class? How do we make it more interactive? And so he, he shared me, like, there's this organization doing this really good and innovative work in the classroom. And it's really not just student-centered, but it's about like really empowering students to own the classroom experience. And so I slowly was introduced to the organization and to the people and to the methods. And I started using those in my classroom. And then just kind of organically, my attention started to shift more and more to the Interactivity Foundation and, and their educational initiatives and also their work with community building through dialogue and deliberation. And and slowly my um, my research and also just my work with ASU, the balance began to shift in, in the favor of the foundation. And so then I eventually came on as a full-time fellow 
for the Interactivity Foundation. And I've been with them now for, goodness, I think 13 years or so. So it's, it's that's what your LinkedIn says. Hey, You've been there a while, which is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So, slow and steady. Yeah. Absolutely. And so when you talk about these interactive methods to use in the classroom, can you give some examples of those? Oh, sure, sure. So in terms of teaching innovation and what we're doing in the classroom, one thing that we're focusing on now, um, which is really an, an exciting new initiative that we launched about two years ago, is our collaborative discussion project. And this project is something that we have developed with uh, dialogue and deliberation practitioners and educators. And so it's not something that we developed internally and then, and then rolled out into the world. It's something that's been slowly building in partnership with these collaborators. And the idea behind it is that we need to work on um, intentional interventions to develop collaborative discussion skills. If you think about it, we teach children and students how to read. We teach them how to write. Where and how are we teaching them to discuss in a collaborative way, in a way that's designed to, to really bring out the best ideas of the group? And behind this project is the notion that we think better when we think together, but under the right conditions. And so this project is a community project and is also open access, open source. So we have a toolkit and we have a certificate program. And the toolkit are, are these activities that can be used in the classroom. And they're designed to be used also in the workplace or in the community workshops, but they're intentional activities designed to develop collaborative discussion skills. And these skills could be things ranging from listening to understand to cultural humility to expressing your ideas with confidence, but also humility, building on the ideas of others, like generating thought versus tearing down thought. And for me, this is a, a really different way of thinking about how we engage the classroom experience. So, you know, I, I grew up through an undergrad at liberal arts education. So discussion was always really important. But oftentimes those discussions were really opportunities to showcase your powers of analysis. It's about finding the internal contradictions of what someone else said and, and use it to tear them apart. And, and so... Sometimes, especially in higher education, we, we come together in these groups to discuss, but not so much to build ideas together, but to dissect ideas, to dissect the other person, to tear yeah. them down in the spirit of making yourself look really smart. And I've done that so many times <laughs> in, in classroom conversations, not so much as a faculty member, but as a participant. And so for me, the vision behind this, and I think the growth for me as a participant and also as an educator is to see this discussion environment not as a place to really showcase your intelligence, but is to bring out the innovative thinking, the diversity, the creativity, the courage of the group. And so it's really about building on the ideas of others. It's about elevating the conversation through using collaborative methods. It's not that analytical methods don't matter, they do, but we're really highlighting and putting front and center the, the power of collaboration. So I'm going to pause you there for a moment because I did recently read this book about this idea of the power of the extended mind. Yeah. And the central thesis was that actually we do outsource all of our thinking to our mobile devices or to our computers or to our space or to physical objects like whiteboards, but also to others. 
as you've just highlighted right now, right? Like we think better when we think together. But I'm wondering, I mean, when you're teaching this type of pedagogy, which I realise that we see very differently than we have to accents, <laughs> I mean, how do you manage this need to innovate and collaborate together with the problems of groupthink? Hmm. Right, right. So, yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I think when groups do get together, I think one thing, and this is one of the activities, is recognizing power in the discussion and who has or who's wielding or who's using power in the discussion and why. And sometimes that's one way to think about, like, am I yielding or am I cowering to this idea because of the person who's saying it? And we often see that in workplace discussions, right? You know what I'm saying. So, and, and, <laughs> yeah. and in the classroom, likewise, like I, I think any instructor is always mindful of the role and the power of their position. And, and so I think as an educator, oftentimes the instructor is mindful of not sharing their perspective too much or not trying to influence the group. So when it comes to group think, I think one, acknowledging the role of power and how it's playing out in the discussion. And then we also have other activities like trying to Think of how to promote curiosity in the group or how to acknowledge bias and assumptions. We have activities for how do we, how do we acknowledge and think about who or what ideas are not part of this conversation. So you're actually seeking out divergent thinking instead of defaulting on what the group's saying. And then activities like identifying stakeholders. So if you are talking about a particular topic and everybody in the group is kind of saying the same thing, there should be an alarm bell going off, right? Like if we're all saying the same thing, then we don't understand the topic or we're thinking about it just from our positionality. So how do we expand that? And so there's an activity we're thinking about around this topic. Who are the stakeholders? And then if they're not in this discussion, like what would they contribute to this discussion? And then how does that influence the way that we're thinking about it? So the goal is to make the topic and the discussion more complicated, not less. And this runs counter, I think, many times the goals of a discussion. And oftentimes a goal of a discussion or a working group is to get to the solution or to get to the answer. And our process with the Interactivity Foundation for discussions is always to, to slow that down, that rush to decisions, that rush to answers. And we start with, let's complexify it. Let's complicate it. Let's expand or blow up the problem. And then... As we do that, let's look at it. Let's surround the topic. Let's look at it from multiple dimensions. I think you've touched on a few really powerful points there, you know, because you really addressed quite clearly the problem of where the group starts to think all in the same way, right? And particularly revealing where there's that power dynamic where perhaps actually on the surface of things, the group might be thinking and saying the same things, but maybe that's really an, an issue of power. I guess, I guess the reason I asked this, well, two reasons actually, one is I recently recorded an episode with Brianna Hernandez of Florida International University where we talked a bit about this challenge of balancing expertise and opinion. And the second part is that I, I myself have experienced being in a workplace where everything was so collaborative yeah. 
that decisions would take six to eight months to get made, which (laughs) was extremely frustrating for me as a very type A kind of person. So I'm just kind of wondering, I mean, when you're teaching this really valuable, really collaborative, really innovation focused and perhaps community building approach as well, Mm -hmm. how do you balance these other things of the equation of expertise and opinion and also the need to occasionally do things Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Well, this is one tool in the toolbox, right? So it's not the best approach for every issue or for every topic. And I think that's one thing that the folks need to know, like there are multiple tools, right? And so it depends on what your goal is and what you're trying to accomplish. But if like my husband hates it when we have a discussion about where do we want to go for dinner? Because I'll be like, well, we could do this and we could do this. And then I'll explode and complexify it. And he'll be like, I hate asking you questions. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> I'm the worst. I'm the worst. And so it's horrible, right? And then we end up like eating a sandwich in the kitchen because I can't. Like that's that's when this process is a yeah. horrible idea. Mm-hmm. Don't do this. Just you know, make a decision. Like if we're on an airplane, do you want us all to sit there together and talk about how should we be flying this plane today? And who wants to take the role of this? And like, we don't want that. We want the expert. We want the pilot in the plane. That's not really up for conversation. There's absolutely a place for expertise and not everything needs to be collaboratively implemented. Oftentimes it's more about like at what stage of development. And so for us, I think when you're in earlier stages of development where you don't have a game plan yet, if you can bring in as many voices as possible, you may be able to see it from different perspectives and you may come up with a different strategy. But at some point you have to implement that strategy and at some point you have to say, okay, let's let's implement. And yes, it could be extremely frustrating if, <laughs> if you're trying to implement in a collaborative way and And not all voices are equal, obviously. It really depends on the topic that you're discussing. Great. Well, you've assolaged my personal (laughs) needs, so thank you. And so I'm just wondering as well, because obviously you deliver these programs and you perhaps see the outcomes, and I'm not asking this in an academic (laughs) sense, but what are some of the results you see from this process? Hmm. There are... A lot of outcomes with this program. We are building a network of educators and practitioners who are interested and invested in collaborative discussion and they want to see more of it in their classroom and in their communities. And so the outcomes, I think, can be multifaceted. I mean, there's the the civic path where we are educating for civic participation and building civic muscle. And so The hope here is that folks either work to help build this collaborative project or are participants in our certificate programs, they become more civically engaged. But many of these things I'm talking about are social skills. And so this helps, especially with students, for career preparedness, to be able to work in teams, even to be able to interview. But the idea is that we're developing these skills, I hope, to to build community as well, where folks can work better in their community if they can collaborate with one another. So that those are the the hopeful outcomes of this. And and this is a little bit, it's similar but different than, than what we do with our community conversation work because those are also collaborative discussions, but we're not emphasizing the skill and we're not teaching. It's rather they are spaces for folks to come together and have exploratory conversations. And so it's not 
an educational initiative as much as it's a community initiative where we create the space and then folks come together to talk. And we can talk more about what that looks like, but that's, that's I'm different. Gonna ask yeah. You. Okay. Gonna ask okay. You, I promise. Yeah, yeah. I promise. But first, I want to just go back to this idea of, of building skills for future generations, to have civic discussions and to build communities. Yeah. And I'm going to... I couldn't talk about myself again. I feel oh, like please. this is becoming like a really narcissistic podcast. <laughs> but I mean, I, I know I shared with you already that we actually had personal development in high school. And so I remember doing the Thomas Pillman conflict styles test at that time, you know, to sort of see where you are in the collaborative compete kind of situation. It was all done with very friendly animals, right? So I remember <laughs> a teddy bear in the middle or something. And I was the shark. <laughs> I was I was the compete, compete, tear them apart with my teeth kind of person. Which, you know, I'm sure you can relate to because you mentioned already being in that academic context where it's about tearing people down rather than building yeah. them up, which is yeah. something I did not love about academia. <laughs> I'm thinking of my current paper I'm reviewing. Anyway, and... But I mean, for myself, a real turning point was actually learning mediation skills mm-hmm. later in life because mm-hmm. it really does shift your thinking to going, well, actually, we can get more if we work together. And it's not about just getting more. It's about building that relationship, of course. And then even beyond that, I remember when I worked at the International Mediation Institute, the Global Pound Conference series showed that this is actually a very common effect, that once people had experienced a mediation process, they were socialized and they actually started to change their behaviors and how they acted in future mediations and future cases. So, you know, this work that you're doing is is very important. You're really laying a lot of important groundwork. <laughs> so huge kudos on that. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Of course. And just before I go on to ask you about the community dialogues you're working on, I noted that when you were talking about what you teach in these different programs, one of them was cultural humility, which I found a really interesting framework. And I wonder whether that related to your background in post-colonialism or what that would mean and where that idea comes from. Mm. Well, within Toolkit, we have five modules, overarching modules, and one is being culturally responsive. And so I think, especially right now in the United States, there's a real emphasis and desire to be more culturally responsive. I think there's a sincere effort to want to be able to engage in difficult conversations and do it respectfully. And we often hear that people can't engage in civil dialogues and we hear that it's shouting matches, but I I see so many people wanting to have these conversations and they're also acknowledging that they need to learn how to do it. Like it's hard, right? It's all hard. We've all are, are learning as we're going. And people, I, in my experience, people really don't want to offend or say something insensitive. They really want to engage in a respectful way. And sometimes they make mistakes and sometimes their language and their use of terminology is not up to date. And you can understand how it comes across as offensive. And I don't think that's the intent, but nonetheless, there's a responsibility to learn. And so I think that's why that that module is, is popular and then people are trying to incorporate it into classroom conversations or community conversations because there is this need and this desire, I think, to to communicate more respectfully and really listen and learn from others as well. And that's where power comes into play. And definitely, I think, with post-colonial studies, power, representation are key, are key aspects when we talk about post-colonialism. Like, you can't discuss post-colonialism without talking about the role of power and representation as well. 
And so can I understand then that to be culturally humble mm. is really sitting there and listening in some ways and recognising that you don't necessarily know what you're doing or know how to act and you start from there? I, I think that's definitely one way to go about it. Many times we things that are part of our identity and things that we just take for granted are socially constructed or, or they are a result of our experiences within a very limited space and time in the world. And so that helps to increase, I think, cultural humility or make folks more aware of it, that their experience is not a universal experience and their identity is not a universal identity. And so putting it in the context of there are so many identities and experiences and it helps one to be more aware of and appreciative of difference, I think, and actually seeing the value of it. Another component of is looking at you know, seeking out and valuing difference, like perspective taking is also like not just trying to put yourself in their shoes, but also trying to understand like where those ideas are, are coming from, like in a sincere way and not in a way where you're trying to dismantle their argument, but really expressing like intentional empathy and even like critical empathy. So not so much that I empathize with you because I understand where you're coming from, but actually understanding the cultural and contextual underpinnings of where you're coming from. That's much deeper, right? And so all of this helps to encourage more curiosity mm-hmm. and more awareness of difference and appreciation of difference. And then and then seeking out those voices in the conversation and then also being aware of your own power in the conversation. Like as a white woman with a PhD, I'm aware that when I talk, I, I, I can sometimes say something slightly intelligent and, and then, and slightly, if only, slightly. slightly. only slightly, only moderately. I was, I, I, I heard your, your intro on being, you know, self-deprecating. So I needed yeah. to throw in some examples. Not deliver. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. So, but like as an instructor, of course, you could always be mindful of your power in the group. And here's an example in a classroom ages ago, I, every class was co-facilitated. And the idea would be that I wasn't the, the person at the center of the classroom. The students were, and they were actually designing the curriculum for the class as well. And so they were facilitating and I was encouraging them to do a warm-up activity at the beginning. And so one student said, okay, let's do musical chairs. And so they lined up the chairs and we were doing it. I was a participant. I wasn't the facilitator, but I noticed like, huh, we did one round of this and I won. And then I was like, okay, let's start again. And let's, we did again. And I won again. It's because they didn't want to bump into me, right? Like I was the instructor who can... Delivered grades. So I'm like, this is fascinating. I am old and I am slow, and you all keep losing to me because you're afraid to bump into me and push me out of the way. And so, like, sorry, because it's the podcast. So no one listening is going to be able to see you, but (laughs) Janet is not old. She's not like some decrepit lady there with a Zimmer frame. She's like a normal, a normal adult woman. This is not like a high risk activity. So Right. Right. Like they can bump into me. Right. I wouldn't melt. I wouldn't crumble, but they wouldn't do it because I was the symbol of power in the classroom and you can't knock your teacher over. And so, yeah, it was just one of those examples. I mean, this happens all the time. Right. And so we want to think about what place am I occupying in this conversation? 
And how can I move myself out of the center and make room for others? And how can I use my voice to help elevate the voices of others? And how can I make other people or help other people to feel comfortable expressing their opinion in their own voice? And so a lot of our work, I think, when it comes to cultural humility or being culturally responsive is to acknowledge how to be a good ally, how to also be willing to be quiet and make space for others. And that's a lot of work. And so there are various activities in this module that help to get at that overall goal, which I guess is just creating a more inclusive and an equitable space for folks to contribute their ideas. Mm. And so what I'm hearing then is that we need to take this training, build a time machine, start <laughs> delivering it maybe like 40 years ago and have that Arizona law never passed. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Here. Well, you know, I mean, there's so much injustice right now. Fortunately for us, there's so much injustice. So we can we can apply and encourage and, and teach cultural fitness or any time. Like we're never going to be in a space where like, oh, this isn't necessary. It's always going to be necessary because we never arrive, right, at mm -hmm. inclusivity. We never arrive at democracy. It's always a process and an aspiration. And so we're always working in that direction. And that's the thing too about this toolkit and also our work when we describe it as skills, we're not talking about it as conceptual concepts that you either understand or you don't understand. We're saying that these are practices. These are mindsets that are always developing and can always be improved. So none of us ever arrive at cultural responsiveness. None of us ever arrive at creative collaboration, but we're on that path and the idea that we're trying to improve our skill set or our mindsets as well. Absolutely. So thank you for sharing all that then about the educational programs you've been working on. And so finally, I want to hear about these community dialogues as well, because you've yeah. mentioned they're not about teaching. Mm -hmm. What are they about? Who do they involve? What happens in them? Tell me everything, please, Sharon. <laughs> Um, so with the Interactivity Foundation, we have multiple initiatives and our mission is to improve democracy through dialogue and deliberation. The idea is that we want to bring folks together to talk and to collaborate, to work together. And behind this idea is that we can't have a democracy if folks can't come together and have conversation and also shape the society that they want to live in. And so how do we do that? And where do we do that? And Part of what we do here is we create these spaces for folks to come together and explore possibilities. And we say policy possibilities, but they're possibilities for creating the world that you want to live in. And so our community conversations programs are thematically organized. We'll have a topic and they're always public. They're always small groups. They're always facilitated. They're always free to join. And so on our website, we have a calendar of events and you can register, folks listening can register for any of these conversations. And what they can expect is a exploratory discussion where we're not there debating or deliberating for a particular purpose. We're there to explore the concept and the idea and then also imagine, like, why does this idea matter for our society? And we try to often use anticipatory thinking, like thinking ahead, like, what's the future of this topic and how do we imagine it where we're not just being reactionary like doing what's always been done but really tapping into like what's 
around this topic, let's say it's, there's a whole series of topics that we can do, but around this topic, like how do we want it to be? And I saw you had one about citizenship, for example. And I remember one of the questions was like, well, will AIs eventually have citizenship? So that'll be hmm. very future thinking to my mind. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. That is really interesting. I can't wait for you to join that conversation. So yeah, so that, and within our conversation work, we do have two different programs or initiatives and our community conversations are opportunities for anybody, everybody to join and talk with others around a topic. And the hope is that you leave that topic and you leave that discussion feeling like you've had a meaningful conversation with others and you understand the topic and the topic is more complicated now that you've had this conversation with others. And you also have thoughts of like, ooh, maybe action steps or next steps are to do X, Y, and Z. We do not advocate particular action steps because we're non-advocacy, but we do encourage folks to take the next steps and to continue the conversation in their own communities. And so right now with our community conversations, we are doing a series on democracy. Like we just had a conversation yesterday and the focus was on what if democracy is in decline? What if democracy is, well, not even what if, democracy is, is, it being, is. <laughs> democracy is being threatened right now. There are threats yeah. to democracy. Let's explore that. What are the threats to democracy? And the one yesterday was an activity actually from the toolkit called Telling the History of the Future, where you start with imagining a future and then you work your way backwards saying, like, how did we get there? And normally you, you imagine a very positive future and you think about how do we get there? So using positive psychology. Yesterday we experimented with, let's really play this out. Democracy is under threat and then nothing happens like Let's imagine you're in this future scenario and democracy's gone. It's no longer a democratic society. What does it look like? How do we know? What does it feel like? What do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? And so let's paint that picture together and then let's walk it backwards. Like, how do we get to that point? And so that was our conversation yesterday. And so it's rather exploratory, but always very generative. And so many people just shared a lot of ideas about Oh, like that's a very complicated vision of what that future looks like. And then walking it back, many of the roots for that future are in place now. We can see ourselves being on that path now. And so then, of course, that opens up opportunities to think about how do we get off of that path or how do we alter this future? And so it creates, again, a very generative exploratory discussion on like, what can we do what, and what should we do? I, I want to go full poly science nerd for yeah. a moment because what I find really interesting is that you described what if democracy was gone tomorrow, mm-hmm. but the idea of democracy still exists, right? And that, I guess, as long as there's books or discourse about it, it still exists. Yeah. And so it's more about, as you mentioned, the feeling of what it is to be in a democracy or a particular idea of democracy, which is obviously so core to US politics in particular, mm-hmm. it's something that's really like, oh, we are bringing democracy, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's quite interesting that we measure democracy as achieved or not achieved. And I'm wondering whether dialogues, as you've described, are actually a really good point to go, well, is democracy the endpoint we want? I mean, not sorry, mm-hmm. not an authoritarian way, but like, is mm-hmm. this the perfect solution for us, right? There was that, I can't remember who said that quote. Was it Winston Churchill or somebody? Mm-hmm. Was like, I know democracy isn't perfect, but it's the best we've got, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that can be part of this discussion. Like, 
what what are the goals and what is the end point? And maybe it's not democracy as we currently understand it. I mean, democracy as we currently understand it in the United States is a primitive form of democracy. It was an early form of democracy. Other states have have developed a, a different forms of democratic engagement that might actually be more directly democratic than some of the processes within the United States. So there's a lot of room for growth and reimagining. But I think one thing that you were saying there that I I think is also important to highlight is democracy in the United States and perhaps around the world, it's aspirational. And it's about being on the path. I don't think it's ever achieved. It's it's that a a Derrida concept that is democracy to come. We never, we never reach it, but we're always working towards it or we should be or could be working towards it. And and then of course you want to get at like, well, what do you mean by democracy? And that's also what can be explored in the discussion. And there are different forms of governance and maybe democracy doesn't have to be the only one, but I think where we're going because the Interactivity Foundation is a nonprofit. And while we're not in advocacy, we do stand firmly on the principle that we are pro-democracy. We do believe that we should be a self-governing country. And so I think sometimes we do have to put those values front and center. And this is, I think, something of a debate within the dialogue and deliberation community in the United States, because There are anti-democratic factions in the U.S. and there are strategies and initiatives people are promoting and um, encouraging anti-democratic behavior, democracy, you know, an aspiration. And it's not everyone's aspiration, but I think it's worth pointing out, and maybe this ties into your question all about, you know, cultural humility and responsiveness. I think this is probably true for places everywhere, but especially in the United States, our country wasn't really built on democracy, right? Like, like it, it, it's never, like this idea, of, it, it's, it's never been democratic. The United States was not built really on democracy or democratic principles. And so democracy arrives or maybe never arrives, but democracy is experienced differently by different groups in the United States and at different times. Democracy, if it arrives, arrives at different times for different people. And so when we say we're worried about democracy being in threat, that's from the position of my positionality as a white person, middle class in the United States. And I have friends and colleagues who are like, yeah, our community has never really experienced democracy. And it's great that you're concerned about it. its decline. We're still concerned about having access to it. So as a country, we had different experience and we've always have had different experiences with our interaction with democracy. And part of what we need to think about as we continue to try to promote and or protect democracy, it still has to be so much more inclusive. And I guess where many of us have fears that we see it backsliding, where it's not only is it not including groups that have been historically excluded, but even folks who have gained some access to democracy are now losing it. And so the LGBTQ community, women in the United States, (laughs) right? Like this is, this is scary Mm -hmm. for, for many people because we're seeing democratic rights and access being removed rather than extended. And the goal is, I think the goal is to always figure out who are we excluding and now how do we 
create more inclusive pathways. And we're doing the opposite. Like, oh, who are we including? How can we get rid of them? And that's that's scary. And so what's informing a lot of our work right now is that we see this backsliding and we can't just put our heads in the sand and say, well, let's just have a neutral conversation on a topic that is easy to talk about. We really have to take on this topic, you know, head on and do so in a way that's not pulling punches where we say, oh, well, Republicans, they have their problems. Democrats have their problems. Oh, you know, good people, bad people on both sides. That's not, it's just really not a helpful way of framing the challenge that we're in right now. So really that idea then of both sidesism. Oh, sure, sure. So and within the dialogue and deliberation communities, organizations have this challenge. Like they want to engage that it's part of a bridging movement, right? They want to bridge. But, you know, I think one thing that we have to think about is like bridging for what purpose? Like it's a challenge for this work because you certainly don't want to create a space and a platform for bad actors to come and promote. They use inclusion, they use tolerance to promote intolerance, or Mm -hmm. they use what we would consider democratic dialogue to promote anti-democratic behaviors. Like that's a challenge for us. And so I think sometimes one thing that we're working on, and I think other organizations are also moving in this direction, is that we have to announce and put front and center our values. We do value equality. We value democracy. We're not going to have or host conversations where you get to come and dehumanize or call into question the humanity of other participants. Like, that's not okay. And so we have to have boundaries. It can't be an anything goes environment. You can't create a space where we're promoting both sidesisms. And this is something that I think journalists in the U.S. and, and abroad are also dealing with is when people are perpetuating misinformation or strategically using disinformation, are journalists ethically required to reshare it, to amplify that message, or ethically required to not reshare it and amplify that message? And that's the same question for the dialogue and deliberation community, like where people are strategically using mis and disinformation to really shake the foundations of reality. Like, can you allow that in that space and say, well, both sides matter. Like, no, they don't. Not always, right? And so I think that's that's important. Like, we need to have ethical boundaries. We have to stand at some point or else we're, the various strategies that we're using to promote community can be used to destroy community. The strategies of deliberative democracy that we're using to build community and collaboration between citizens and use to become a self-governing country, like those can be used against us to actually dismantle governance. And so I think we have to be careful and mindful that there are bad actors and we don't want our programming to be used in a way that actually is the antithesis of the whole mission. Mm. And I say all of that, and I'm also very sympathetic to dialogue and the liberation organizations and practitioners who want to engage. And their goal is to engage, engage, bring people in and I think that matters too. But as we were saying earlier, like there's different tools in the toolbox. I think sometimes when you're dealing with folks who have not just really different ideas, but they have ideas that they call into question the right for other people to exist. Mm. I'm not sure that our 
process of public community conversation forums is the right place to explore those ideas. I think those ideas could be better explored through one-on-one deep interaction. Those are explored better with sustained conversation with trusted loved ones who care. I don't know if the public forum is the right place to say, okay, let's really dive deep into your white supremacist ideas. Like, I don't know that there's going to be much transformation or sincere, faithful engagement in a public forum like that. But I know that's something that we're all exploring and thinking about. Well, I think one of the things that really illustrates actually what you were just talking about in terms of white supremacist, the example you gave and how they need that ongoing one-on-one support and a loving dialogue with people around them is actually the story of Derek Black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David Duke's godson. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, That's exactly the example, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because, I mean, he was the voice of youth white supremacy Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And, I mean, I read the book about him rising at a page, which is based on extensive interviews with him. And yeah, the focus is on, well, actually I went to his liberal arts college <laughs> and, you know, everyone talked to me and they didn't cast me out. And then I had this girlfriend who was really supportive and engaged with me, even when my ideas were totally repugnant. And it was that, <laughs> maybe those words weren't used exactly, um, but it was that long-term engagement and acceptance and I guess a psychological safety as well yeah. Yeah. that allowed him to not only disregard those prior views but start mm-hmm. to work against them which mm-hmm. involved as well don't forget going against his family yeah who were huge in that movement in the U.S. so that's a really good example of that I, I agree I agree and that's that's the thing it's like I feel like that's a successful example of engagement but when we think about different methods for transformation and within the dialogue and deliberation community I'm not sure that in, yeah. engaging in like public community conversations would have had that end goal, right? Because it does involve that deep connection and sustained engagement and, like you said, psychological safety. I noticed that before when you were talking, you were talking about these different sides. I mean, here is mm-hmm. the case of white supremacists versus mm-hmm. different not, mm-hmm. right? Or in the U.S. systems, obviously very divisive in terms of you're on this side, you're on this side. Do you think it's feasible for any kind of dialogue to take place where we frame ourselves as part of a side. I'm thinking of a particular example of the UK, right? Because earlier you were talking about this idea of dehumanization. Mm-hmm. We've, yeah, we've obviously mentioned racist. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned anti-democratic elements, which are obviously super, super visible in the US space, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. elsewhere. And I think that both of us are probably in similar political positions. And so mm-hmm. it's easy for us to say, well, it's them who are always the problem, right? And again, I'm kind of both sides this, right? But when I was interviewing people in the UK who voted to leave the EU, mm-hmm. from every single person in these interviews without any prompting question, they all chose to share that one of the big reasons they had decided to vote leave is because other people called them stupid and racist. Yeah. And that yeah. entrenched them in their view. Mm -hmm. So this Mm -hmm. dehumanization was Mm -hmm. really taking place in a lot of different fora. And it's, I think it's hard. I mean, you mentioned earlier this idea of humility. It's hard to not feel like we have the high ground and that that does take place on both or all sides. Sure. And so I'm wondering, I mean, in your community forums, is there a way to manage whether people see themselves as part of team A and team B? 
is there a way to create an area which is a shared space where people can overlap without being reified into Democrat and Republican or, you know, Leave and Remainer in the UK or whatever it might be? Yeah, so that's a good question. And I'm going to give you a very messy answer. But I, I think with our community conversation programming, we certainly would never ask up front people to identify with any sort of political affiliation. And we, we would never do something like that. And then we also try to explore ideas, not the abstract like identity or political party behind that idea. So there's certainly room to humanize the perspective of others. And you might get a glimpse like, oh, I think this person might be a supporter of Trump based on things that they're saying. But I also see like people are complicated. This person is also putting forth these other values that I embrace. And so I think there's certainly room to connect on that individual level and to see the complexity of people, even if they vote for Brexit or they vote for Donald Trump, they're still complicated people. And personally, I don't think using these sweeping labels to characterize 100 million people like, well, if you are a Republican in the United States, then you're a racist. Like that, that's not a helpful statement. And anybody saying things like that, that's not helpful at all, nor is it accurate, right? But the challenge, I think, in the United States, at least, is that when we talk about, in particular, the Republican Party, I feel like our levels of analysis are blurred. Like we often talk about it as if it's one monolith. And it's not, right? It, it, there's so much variation. And then the other part is we're also not distinguishing between the strategist and those who are perpetuating strategy for a reason and for an end goal and members of the party who are consuming messaging and believing it. And, and anyway, I think like there's a difference there. However, I, I think one political party is using strategies that are really designed to use fear as a mobilizing tactic. They're using strategies of simplifying issues, creating it, boiling it down to a single message and repeating it over and over again. And I wouldn't say that both parties in the United States are using those strategies in the same way or for the same reason. And so I think it matters that we make those distinctions. And then I think there's definitely room and I think a responsibility to distinguish between those who are Again, the strategists, those who are actually perpetuating anti-democratic strategy, and then those are who are recipients of that strategy. And it sounds condescending, though, and I don't mean for it to sound that way. But we also don't want to get into the structure agency problem. And I also, yeah, well, and I, I think also like we, we do need to have an honest conversation, too, that when I say it's not a monolith, even the folks who are let's say, part of this party, and either they believe or they don't believe this messaging. They may believe it for different reasons. Some folks may actually have a sense of white superiority, and this messaging really appeals to them and explains to them like why they feel like their position in society is being challenged. They feel like they're being left behind and that they've had some sort of, um, they should have some sort of guarantee of privilege in society. And so it appeals to them. And then let's not pretend like that's not part of American culture. So there, there is racism. There, there are folks who are motivated to use their white privilege and think that they are entitled to do so. That's part of the mix, but that's not the whole story. And so I think to your point, we make a 
a big mistake by suggesting that's everyone. And we really alienate a group that we could otherwise engage and we want to engage. So it's messy when we're dealing with such a large country and not a singular political party or a political identity, but very complicated identities. I think the thing that really strikes me as we're having this conversation is, you know, you just used the word messy, but actually the consistent message is you want to complexify And so, yeah, you are making parties more complex and groups more complex and issues more complex. And that gets to your work with the community dialogues and with the collaborative classrooms discussions as well, which is fantastic. And so because we're just getting really heavy, I do want to ask you a slightly more frivolous question, only slightly more. (laughs) And that is, who actually signs up to attend these sessions? Mm -hmm. I mean, when I go to sessions in Brussels, it's because they give me free wine. Free <laughs> come. Why do they come? Yeah, it's a mix, right? And so right now we are entirely online and have been because of the pandemic for the last two years. And so I think in the past, my colleague, Yevon Naturno and Pete Shively and Jeff Prudhomme, they would host in-person dialogues and oftentimes like an affiliation with a public library in DC, for example. And it depends on the topic, but like sometimes there, there might be, if we're doing like the role of art in society, there might be artists that, or there might be dancers and musicians. And so they're there for that component. And then the discussion, almost always food of some kind when we're doing in-person discussions. But online, it's a different model. So online, it's folks who are really interested and passionate about the topic, but also the process of discussion and always having partner organizations that will help to recruit from their networks, their communities. That's always successful or not always successful, but that's a successful model when organizing community events. We have our network, but when we partner with others and they bring their community to the conversation, that's helpful. And then in broad terms for dialogue and deliberation events, I think a challenge for the whole field is we still skew towards progressives and liberals. Women show up more often than men in general, and older folks generally show up more than younger folks. So these are all things that we're aware of in the field. It's not unique to our programming and things that the whole field is trying to figure out, like how do we create a more inclusive environment and what's the right strategy or formula for getting folks to show up. And so it's mixed for sure. Like even the time of day, our discussion yesterday was at two o'clock Eastern time. So that means a lot of folks who are working wouldn't be able to attend. And these are things to think about many organizations will piggyback on where folks are already gathering and then figure out how to include a discussion. So I don't think there's a perfect model, but yeah, it's experimentation. Yeah. I think it's always experimenting and figuring it out. Absolutely. And so when you're practicing, whether you're facilitating dialogues and processes or whether you're perhaps even taking part in these dialogues and processes, and aiming to complexify, that can be a very destabilizing process and obviously really cognitively demanding as well. It takes a lot of what I like to call brain juice to do. And so how do you reground after that process? So what are some of the, the strategies people can use? Say they listen to this podcast, they go, oh, I need to start thinking about everything in terms of different grades and, and what have you. Yes. What can they do to then reground recenter and maintain healthy as opposed to developing an ongoing anxiety yeah 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 so maybe if we thought about it as an arc 
I guess your starting point is to complexify and really engage in divergent thinking, make it as complicated as possible. You're right. Can't, for most topics, stop there. And folks won't leave that feeling satisfied. They'll leave that feeling, oh, wow, that's more complicated than I thought. I might even disengage now because I can't get my head around like what I can do next. And so I do think it's important. And the idea is to leave folks thinking about next steps and also having an opportunity for folks to really, like, once they can imagine it on a whiteboard, once they generate all of their concerns or look at the topic, the area of concern from multiple dimensions, how do we then contract or constrict and then converge and think about like, what of, of all of this, what matters most to us right now? What is most actionable right now? What is most aspirational right now? Where do we want to focus our energy? And then even as a group, this is where deliberation comes into. So if, if we're talking about dialogue and exploration earlier on, now deliberation comes into play where we have to consolidate, we have to prioritize, and this is where hard decisions can be made. And for us, we don't direct particular pathways. We don't advocate particular agendas, but we do encourage folks to think, what are our next steps? What are pathways forward that I can take now? And part of that might be like, I need to learn more. I need to dive deeper into the topic and information. It might be a, a personal path of growth and learning, or it might be, I need to talk with my community about this, or it might be. I need to advocate a policy in my community, or I need to take on a leadership role around this topic. So I think those actionable steps depend on the participants, but I think you're totally right. For folks who are organizing this kind of work, you can't end it with a broad exploration. Like if you were a travel guide, and let's say you're taking folks, let's say into the desert and you're like, wow, this is expansive. Go and explore. And then you run back to the van and take off yeah. <laughs> while, they're, while they're roaming and exploring. You, you jump in the van and you go back to the hotel and you have dinner yeah. with your wife. That would be irresponsible, right? So you, you definitely want to bring them back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Fantastic. Well, look, Shannon, thank you so much for joining me today. And for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? Oh, thank you. I'm trying to think of a, where can you find me? Like in the bar, <laughs> you can find me in the bar, but you can't because I have children and no life whatsoever. You can find <laughs> me behind my desk at all times, like a complete nerd. But you can find us at the interactivityfoundation.org. And that website is where you can contact any of us about exploratory community conversation. Also, our collaborative discussion project is collaborativediscussionproject.com. That's a separate site, but it, it's still a project of the Interactivity Foundation. And of course, it's clearly not a one-woman show. We are a small organization and my colleagues do so much of this work. We're a small team. We work very well collaboratively together and they really should get so much of that credit. So Jeff Prudhomme, Pete Shively, Yevon Eterno, our president, Jack Bird. And we also have this wonderful staff in Parkersburg in West Virginia, where our foundation is located, even though we are all over the United States. Thank you so much again. And for everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.